Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast uh, where where uh, snacks are delicious. <laughs> Just snacks in general. Well, everyone likes snacks. Your favorite mm. snacks. Not the snacks you don't like. The ones you do. Uh, Anyway, I, uh, I was I was off snacking. I just started snacking again on Sunday. Oh, there you go. That was a choice. It, it was a choice. Yeah, there you a, go. A, a choice I made. I was off snacks. There you go. Um, lost a lot of weight. <laughs> oh, you look great. It turns out, yeah, I, I graze an awful lot. It's difficult to get off once you start. Well, that's why I have, I have an assortment of snacks here for you. There, right there are many snacks nearby. Yeah. It's it's really rather pleasant. Yeah, I like having a lot of snacks. Uh, my name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic, and uh, I am surrounded by snacks. Yeah, and uh, I want to give everyone a quick update. Uh, some people may have noticed that we've had a few fewer podcasts Lately, in the last couple of weeks, uh, and uh, there's been some stuff going on. I alluded to it in a previous podcast. I didn't want to say anything until I knew for a fact uh, what was happening. But uh, long story short, and don't worry, there's a happy ending to this. Uh, I had a cancer scare, specifically a skin cancer scare. Uh, It's all fine. I I actually had what is called basal cell uh, skin cancer, which is the kind that is... The, the one if you're gonna have it you want to have that one yeah that's the good one they, uh, they it's named, not good but it's they were kind enough to name it after a nice herb yeah um so uh I got my latest biopsy back they got all of it it's fine uh, but I wanted to use this opportunity to uh, remind everybody especially if you're a little older if you have any particular uh, moles or anything uh, that might look a little odd to you. Uh, go see a dermatologist. It's not scary, even in a, a rough situation. You're in and out really, really quick. Uh, and they treated me really, really great. And it's it's all okay now. I just have to go to the dermatologist more often to keep an eye on things. So I want to give everyone a quick reminder in case you hadn't in a while or, or even putting it off. Take it from me. Don't put it off. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, I'm fine. Thank you for everybody who expressed some concerns when I vaguely alluded to it previously. That's what's been happening with me. It's been a little distracting of, you know, I'm a hypochondriac in general, so there was some despair going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, uh, but fortunately, I have good friends like Whitney and Michelle, of course. Uh, My partner has been absolutely wonderful. And yeah, it turns out not that big a deal, but there was a brief scare. Anyway, we get to talk about movies now. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) Something... Something, something we can get our heads around. Something, we, yeah. something, something super pleasant. I sure hope that there's a really fun, big budget blockbuster in theaters this last weekend well, that we can all enjoy, which has no problematic elements. Um, well, uh, there is a big budget blockbuster in theaters this weekend. Uh-huh. Uh, I like, I like the start of this. Yeah, it's the eleventh film in a uh, long-running beloved series. Oh, of that's encouraging. Pictures. That's encouraging. Okay, yeah. now tell me more. It's, tell me it more. Started out as a, a fanciful world about uh, ch- children wizards going to a boarding school. You have and lost it was, me, and it was all very and it was all very delightful and magical, and then uh-huh. then it got muddy and miserable, and it became all about like war and conspiracies. Yeah, and, and then they stopped that series and started an even more miserable series, and we're three films into that series now. Yeah, this is this Fantastic is... Beasts: The Secrets of Dumbledore. Uh, boy, Harry Potter. Okay, there's there have been a number of significant 
coincidentally, I think fantasy franchises, Mm -hmm. uh, where they were on top of the world, everyone loved them, everyone was talking about them for a really long time, and then in the relatively recent future, mistakes were made, and now to some people, they are anathema. Well, like Game of Thrones was like riding high was everyone's favorite thing in the world. One bad last season. It was a really bad last season. Everyone's just like, no, fuck it. It was never good in the first place. I think uh, Star Wars, Harry Potter, and uh, The Hobbit mm-hmm. all had. I guess Lord of the Rings all had yeah. a, a very specific arc where they were riding really high with like a, a big series of mm. like interconnected movies that everybody really liked. Uh, the the those first three Star Wars theatrical released feature films were, oh, yeah, like, were like the biggest thing ever. Yeah, people you know, started referring to them as the trilogy, and uh, then they made three Lord of the Rings movies, and they were twelve hours apiece, and uh, they just lasted <laughs> forever. And there's gigantic uh, productions, one lots a, of, lots ton of, of Oscars, they're Oscars. a big deal, yeah. Uh, and Harry Potter, uh, there were eight of those. They're just a big old hunk of those. They things. made huge amounts of yeah. money. They were inspiring to a whole generation of kids. And, uh, and all of those series wrapped up. They're fine. We're done. Yeah. Uh, I guess they, there could have been a, a fourth Star Wars film. There was no reason to stop where they did, but they did. They did. Uh, but they just had to keep going, didn't but they? But then they had to keep going. It's like, how how can we milk this a little a little bit more? Well, so they said, well, the story's finished. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harry Potter went to Broadway. A little, little bit of an adjunct. They had a, had a play. That's an interesting yeah. choice. Interesting. Yeah, I never still haven't seen it. I have no idea if that's any good or not, but interesting mm-hmm. choice. Star Wars had some TV shows. Well, it went fallow for a while, and then it came back for the prequels, well, which were I successful, was, but had mixed success. Well, what I was, I was going to get to is yeah. uh, the only way they could go back is to make prequels. They had to sh- yeah. tell the story before the story. Mm-hmm. So we had uh, Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. We had uh, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, and uh-huh. we had Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Ah, I see. And they all I see suck. How, yeah. <laughs> well, I will, I will say this. Um, the Hobbit would have been good as one film. Yes. Maybe two. If you really want to milk it, maybe two. Stretching that sucker out to three. Three the, long you movies. You did not like have the, mat- the, the, the hour and a half animated movie gives you the entire book. Mm-hmm. You know, I understand if you want to pad it a little they, bit, they, but they you don't out, need um, that much time. They cut out the the were bear. There's like yeah. a bear man in the, like bo- in the book. They cut out a few things, yeah. but like basically the whole book is there. You don't really need a nine hour epic to tell the Hobbit. The Hobbit is the prequel. The Hobbit is mm. the one quick chapter before everything gets started. The prologue. And it's and it's also like kind of quaint and adorable. Yeah. It's not about gigantic action. Yeah, uh, there is a war at the end of the book, but the whole point is that the Hobbit. It's like, I don't understand unco- war. In the book, he gets knocked out. Yeah, in the book, he's unconscious. The, and we don't the see the film, war. And the whole the point is he just wanders away and yeah. lets them fight and doesn't get involved well, at all. No, eventually he says he got hit on the head and missed it. But, like, regardless, mm. the point is war is stupid mm. and we shouldn't be celebrating war. And the, the, the when they made the trilogy, they made the last, like, two hours all awesome war shit, which is just the exact opposite of the point. Mm. Star Wars, they had more freedom. That was George Lucas's original idea. He could do whatever he wanted with it. Some of it had been alluded to, whatever. But, like, when it came time to do Harry Potter, and I feel like we got a little in the weeds here. Let's focus on Harry Potter for a second. Harry Potter had that enormously successful original series. Uh, stretched out the last book to two movies. Don't really think they needed to, but they made that choice. And then that was kind of it. They did a Broadway play. People seemed to like that. And then they're like, well, what else can we do? And J.K. Rowling had the idea to take a character who had been mentioned, 
mm. in the original series. Newt Scamander, he wrote a textbook that they use at Hogwarts, a textbook which implied that he had done interesting things called Fantastic mm. Beasts and Where to Find Them, and said, what if I did a movie series about that guy? And on paper, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that could be cool. Oh, let's go explore some different corners of the magical world. Let's talk about some Fantastic Beasts. And then it just couldn't focus on that. We had to make it all about wizarding politics and mm. the prequel ship for oh, Dumbledore. Yeah. And we just had to make it more complicated. We had to make it uh, more connective tissue with the original series, even things that didn't make any goddamn sense. And it just became this giant mess of unfocused stuff. My, I, I'm not a big fan of uh, any of the films that David Yates made for this series, which yeah. is going on eight of them now. Uh, or no, five, five, six, seven, eight, and then uh, one. So well, seven. five, six, yeah, five, six, so seven. So he's done seven of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is just an astounding. Uh, he's been doing that for over ten years. Mm. Uh, that's this has been sort of his main gig. Uh, yeah. In there, he did a Tarzan movie, which I also didn't like. No, it's not very good. And I feel like uh, a I don't like the way he shoots his movies. I was actually looking up if he works with the same cinematographer each time. Mm. It's a different cinematographer each time, yeah. and yet somehow he's managed to uh, give instructions to each one of his cinematographers, some of whom are like have long careers and are very skilled photographers, to make everything look a little bit hazy and indistinct. Yeah. Uh, there's no natural light in his movies. It's all very like gray and shadowy. Whenever there's a shot of the sky, it's always covered with clouds or even CGI clouds. Yeah. Uh, and everything looks really kind of, kind of drab and indistinct. Uh, that's been a problem throughout his entire Mm-hmm. Harry Potter run and that yeah. goes into uh, this new uh, Fantastic Beasts film as well Yeah, a- and as well he seems to have lost the thread on uh, an important element of storytelling and that's just a basic amount of clarity mm, yeah. I understand that these Harry Potter uh, movies were based on books uh, yeah. when it comes to the actual Harry and they Potter were best selling books there was yeah, some so, understanding that the people in the audience a lot of them would have read the exactly. books so uh there was a lot of effort to bring key moments into the movies and mm-hmm. give them a lot of gravitas because everything was important to the reader. Yeah. They wanted to see everything just all the minutiae. The yeah. And when you do that, though, you miss like pacing and cinematic storytelling. And sometimes I feel like those movies, especially the Harry Potter ones, mm. took for granted what the audience knew and kind of forgot to tell a story that works in the film. Yeah. Case in point. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Over the course of the book... Uh, <laughs> the, what the of, actual title Well, means, over yeah. the course of the movie, Harry Potter has a textbook that has notes from someone who refers to himself as the Half-Blood Prince. And he uses those notes to get better grades mm. in his classes. Okay. Uh, at the end of the movie, Snape tells him, I was the Half-Blood Prince. At no point does the movie explain what that what, means what or refers ha- to. What a half-blood prince is. Why is he a half-blood? Is, is he royalty? Whatever. The book makes it clear. The book establishes that. It's just basically, and this was an important moment in the book, and we will do none of the context that makes it have any significance mm. whatsoever. I said good day to you, sir. <laughs> So he, uh, he, for me, always feels like he's just kind of like doing the Cliff's Notes mm. of a lot of the stories. But with Fantastic Which, well, Beasts, well, he had I, the opportunity to tell these stories from scratch. And I was hoping maybe they would have some sense of wonder and some sense of uh, uh, majesty as we're introducing well, the, uh, new characters and new I, ideas. I think, um, and I feel like we only had that in a couple of moments. I think what happened was, because the those uh, like... Five, six, seven, and seven, and eight of the Harry Potter movies were all massive hits. They, they were big yeah. money makers. Oh yeah. 
And uh, they made the same mistake as those Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Those movies were, like, really kind of dense and convoluted and didn't make a whole lot of sense unless you had read the books. And I think the filmmakers... Not Pirates, Harry Potter. Both, actually. Well, Harry Potter, um, what, Pirates wasn't based on books. No, but yeah. you know, they're both, like, dense, dense and, and convoluted. Dense and yeah. overcrowded and convoluted. Especially after and the I first think, one, yeah. Uh, the filmmakers assumed that's what the audience wanted, was mm-hmm. dense and convoluted. So when it came time to make these Fantastic Beasts movies, not based on books... Uh-huh. Inspired by characters from the books, but you can now make a movie of this that you you weren't beholden to certain moments any longer. No, but they still told them in the same way with that yeah. dense, convoluted storytelling. Which is where weird. A lot of these moments are given a lot of gravitas, but we didn't have any connection to those moments what's, anymore. What's weird about it is that if you look at the original Harry Potter movie, Harry Potter mm-hmm. and the Philosopher's Stone or Sorcerer's Stone, depending mm-hmm. on where you were and when it was released, uh, the original Harry Potter. By the way, the book is super short. Like, the later ones are, like, these gigantic, like eight hundred, you know, like, books, Dickensian yeah. giant novels. And then, but the first one's, like, a little pamphlet. The first one's, like, totally a kid's book. The first movie is really simple. The first movie is a very simple, straightforward, wish-fulfillment uh, uh, fantasy for kids who feel down, downtrodden. Mm. That's it. That That's the whole fucking thing. Harry Potter finds out his shitty childhood is not his destiny. And in fact, he actually is going to be part of this magical world of wonder. He meets some cool people. He has a couple of quick one-off adventures. He stops a bad guy at the end and everything goes his way. That's it. It introduces you to everything in a very clean, very simple, but very effective way. Fantastic Beasts never had that. It was always just jammed you right into this really big, giant, convoluted world. And I feel like they just, they never had, I don't know if it's the, if they had too much confidence in their material or not enough. Mm. I honestly don't know. Because we really didn't get to know most of these characters very well. And uh, then we just kind of got shoved them into bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger stories. And that's not even getting into the other elephant in the room. Uh, which is J.K. Rowling. <laughs> Being a horrible person. Well, J.K. Rowling uh, ha- has turned into what is known as a TERF. Mm. A trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Someone who believes that in order to help women, uh, you have to push down people who are trans. By trans women. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that is to, that is to, fucked up. It, it's fucked up and it's not... Not a case of her saying some ignorance shit and then uh, being corrected. Yeah. Or, and then uh, maybe, oh, I realized I was wrong. You know, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. No. She continued to press. Double down. And continued to press. Still does. Still does. And yeah. uh, when was when she was told, you're wrong about this, she continued to press. She wrote a book about it. She wrote a novel. Mm. Uh, pressing into a lot of these media-fed fears about what, what trans people. What novel did she write? She wrote a novel about uh, a, a man who dressed as a woman so he could infiltrate women's spaces and murder them. What the hell are you t- What? That was J.K. Rowling novel. Oh it was a murder God. mystery All right, novel. well, that's... Okay, so, I missed that one. All right. So, uh, yeah, she she's leaned in hard to yeah. this shit. And, yeah. uh, and that, that only... Has, and that has kind of tainted her legacy in a lot of ways. Well, it tainted her legacy in a lot of ways. And, it's also mm-hmm. caused a lot, called a lot of attention to stuff in the books that people were pretty happy to give a pass to initially. Like, uh, the whole idea that all of the money in the Harry Potter universe is controlled by... Creepy little monsters with big noses. Cool. Yeah, it's yeah. like a, a, a lot of lot of caricatures that are extremely 
uh, uh, bad stereotypes. Yeah, it, that, yeah. That's definitely a bad stereotype. Uh, it's yeah. That's that stereotype is not her doing though. It's, it's well, she didn't start it, but she no, definitely but she definitely leaned into it. it. It's it's something that you know, like a lot of authors, you know, even yeah. even to this day, are still kind of leaning into. So that's an yeah. unfortunate stereotype that mm-hmm. she leaned into. Well, my point uh, is that it just so it, everyone just started taking a closer look yeah. and not liking what uh, they saw. There were uh, some rumors uh, when the books were published that the character of Albus Dumbledore, who's mm-hmm. the headmaster at Hogwarts, uh, just school. Yeah, uh, it's not a university. It's no, Hug- it's, a, it's for Hogwarts, kids. Hogwarts yeah. school for kids. Yeah, uh, that the character might be queer. Uh, yeah. He has no romances or has any romantic talk in any of the books. But, uh, and indeed, in uh, the last book, there's, it's heavily implied that he had a at least somewhat romantic relationship with another uh, man when he was a teenager. Yeah. Uh, and uh, But yeah, and uh, he, he just mm. gave off the vibes. And then later on, J.K. Rowling said in interviews, mm. never, in, never in print, that Dumbledore is gay, or at least he's supposed mm. to be. Uh, and some people were like, "Oh, that's cool." And other people were like, "Well, why Just can't put that he, in the book? Yeah. Why can't we have actual representation and maybe like put that in there so yeah, people the, uh, realize that this is okay and that there's actually a- like a whole the, world yeah, of, of heroes who are actually diverse in Harry Potter? And wouldn't that be nice?" So yeah, the, the little after the fact stuff was yeah. a, li- a little limp. It didn't. didn't that's yeah. not representation. No. It's like, oh, you okay? You can read this book now. You can pretend that character is gay or straight yeah. or whatever you want. It's like, well, that's not representation. No. Which brings uh, us to this movie. It brings us to this movie. It's called The Secrets of Dumbledore, and in this one, uh, there are several lines of dialogue throughout, and a rather penetrating moment in the climax. Mm-hmm. Where uh, his romance with the character of Grindelwald, played by Mads Mikkelsen in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, is key. Yeah. In fact, it is explicitly stated that Dumbledore was in love mm-hmm. with Grindelwald, and their relationship is a central uh, uh, part of the film. It is worth noting that they did that, finally, mm-hmm. after all this time. It is oh, also yeah. worth noting that they did it in such a way that it could be easily edited out of the film for international markets, and the plot would still make sense. The plot would still make sense. Uh, yeah. There, it, there. I think there's like two explicit lines of dialogue only yeah. in two different yeah. points in the movie. Uh, there, there's a, a, a magical widget in this movie uh, that yeah, which uh, we saw in one of the earlier films as well. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Dumbledore wears it around his wrist. It's like a yeah. chain, and inside is a drop of his blood and a drop of Grindelwald's blood, and it's this thing that prevents them from attacking each other. Yeah, they've made a vow uh, never to hurt each other. Basically, yeah. and uh, he he says in dialogue, "This is." we made this because we were in love. We yeah. were, we're going to take on the world together. So we made this magical thing. We could never hurt each other. Uh, and that's a pretty romantic object to own, whether or not you, uh, you it's cut true. it off for story reasons. Yeah. Um, it is a pity that you can make a few you know, tactful cuts and take the queerness mm. out of the movie. But I, I, appreciate that that's actually a, a big part of the movie not just something yeah. that's incidentally mentioned i i also uh, think it's a it's something that we talked about maybe a little less than some of the other stuff we talked about uh that the movie equates uh dumbledore's only relationship only romantic relationship in history uh as a teenager uh with a brief summertime dalliance with fascism <laughs> because he well, was on he was on grindelwald's side for a while and they actually agreed on a lot of major yeah, talking for, points and grindelwald went off and actually did all that stuff and Dumbledore yeah, realized but, he was wrong. Well, you know, you're a young, bitter teen and that's, that's I understand, but, but making, like making a, the parallel, it's like, being like a, my one gay relationship was also my one closest yeah. relationship with fascism. It's sort I of think, like, eh, I, I, I think that's know. more, that's uh, more of a youthful thing. It's like saying you're a teenage anarchist. I'm, I'm, 
th- that doesn't bother me so much. I just uh, think it's not. If it's the only representation we got, it's not great. Uh, all right. Uh, the story of this movie is. <laughs> uh, okay, so this really frustrated me. Uh, there's yeah. a few introductions. We get to see a flashback with. Uh, Dumbledore and Grindelwald. Mm-hmm. We get to see Newt Scamander uh, uh, gathering up uh, an exotic beast, a fantastic beast. Yes. Uh, which is actually going to serve an actual plot function. In it's actually movie, really but, important. It's, it is very, uh, very important to the thing. Yeah. And then we'll get to the actual like beginning of the plot. Uh, several of the main characters, some from previous movies, some I think are new, uh, are gathered on a train. And they say, okay, we're all gathered. We're the good guys. And we're going to take on Grindelwald, who is... An evil wizard who wants to kill humans because he mm. can foresee the future. He's seen that this is, takes place in the 1920s. He's seen that World War II is coming. Mm. They're gonna these humans are gonna make a bomb. We gotta kill them before they start killing everybody. Yeah, Grindelwald wants to stop yeah. World War II. Yeah, uh, a plot point which is never mentioned in this film. At no, the end of the fact, last movie, they say, "Yeah, we need to we need to all band together as wizards because humans are gonna do a World War II." Mm. And then this movie never brings that up again. Well, th- th- now it's. Grindelwald's plan is in order to carry out his plot to uh-huh. wipe out humanity is, and I don't really quite understand this, become wizard president. Yeah. There's a, an election coming up for uh, like ruler of all world wizard. Yeah, yeah. The ruler of the world, the pre- the wizards actually have an election to decide who's going to rule the world. Hmm. This was never mentioned in the Harry Potter books, by the way, which it feels like a kind of thing that it wouldn't be important. <laughs> by the way, there's a leader of the world. Hmm. <laughs> Um, and uh, his his plot to do so is he's going to gather all the wizards together. Uh, he's going to get uh, this magical beast yeah, that we saw in the intro. Chillin'. It's because it's chillin' like a villain, chillin' for a villain. Hmm. Uh, and he is going to uh, kill it. Yeah. But then resurrect it like through necromancy. Yeah, he's going to zombify. Then, basically, it's it's basically Bambi, but it looks a little weird. Yeah, it's this kind of yeah, yeah. This, this like reptilian deer creature. So at the and, beginning uh, of the movie, and it's a fawn. And yeah. uh, if he can get that fawn to bow to him at a key moment, yeah, he will be accepted as wizard president. Because those fawns only bow to people who are truly pure of heart. Mm. And, but he uh, has a zombie fawn that he can force yeah, to so, bow for him. Okay, so you know, like in the movie Bambi, when like Bambi's mom dies, <laughs> and it's like the saddest thing ever. Uh, that happens like twice in the first fifteen minutes of this movie. It's something like really traumatic and horrible happening to like a sweet innocent animal. Like it's really dark. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's the idea is uh, he's going to manipulate himself so that he can become potentially elected president of mm. Earth. And in order to but, uh, do th- in order to because he's got a bad reputation, what with all the terrorism, he's going to get this uh, this magic zombie fawn to say, yeah, he's cool. Mm. And then everyone's going to be like, oh, well, if the magic zombie fawn we says, tr- yes, the they don't fawn. know it's a zombie. But if the magic fawn says, yes. Boom! I love the way that they vote for wizard president because they sh- what they, they do shoot is shoot a color up in the yeah, air with so their like, magic wand. This was the red presidential candidate. This is the green one. This is the blue one, and you shoot them way up in the air, and they'll all just say, "Well, that's mostly red." And I'm like, "What if it's close? <laughs> what if it's like? What if, we've all know close elections happen. Like, what if it's like down to like a couple of votes? Who's counting that? How does that work?" Uh, the aggravating thing is once all the 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 good guys want to stop this from happening. Yeah, they, they know as uh, they would, as they would, uh, and 
now because they know Grindelwald can see the future, uh-huh. they've gathered them all up. We have uh, Newt Scamander, that's Eddie Redmayne. He's mm-hmm. been the main character of the last two movies. And, and he's have, not uh, anymore. He's just part he's of the group. Kind of part of this group. Um, yeah. There's a few other side characters there's, who are all new. There's his brother. Uh, his brother we saw before. His, we did got we his, see his brother before? Yeah, he was right. born. It wasn't, it wasn't like kind of a huge role, but he was in the last one. We have his brother. Uh, we have uh, Dan Fogler is back. Mm-hmm. As, as the American uh, human baker, he's not a yeah. wizard. Honestly, he's the best part of this whole series. He's, he's uh, so damn good. He's really he, he bring, he's the only one who brings any actual humanity because he's the only human. Yeah. I, I'm learning that wizards don't behave like humans. Well, that was actually kind of important in the books, and the movies kind of lost sight of that and made uh, him like more 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 humany in terms of their like culture and society. But like uh, in one of the movies, uh, a wizard dad says, "Hey, Harry Potter, you lived with all of these non magic people. Yeah, like I I live in the wizard world, and everything's different here. Yeah, we don't." I don't interact with humans at all. Yeah. So, and and the question is, what is the purpose of a rubber duck? Uh, yeah. Because you know, this is an, an alien yeah. object. In, in the books, wizards mm. don't wear pants. They always wear robes. Like, always wear robes. And yeah. in the third movie, Alfonso Crone was just like, that's stupid and I don't like that. So he just had them do that. But then we still had two movies where they did. Uh, and it kind of just doesn't fit anymore. You kind of just create like, this continuity here. I, I like the robes, though. They're I wizards. They, I should, they should wear robes. I don't disagree, but whatever. The movies made, the movies made their choices. But, um, all right, so there's them. Uh, you got a, uh, a new character played by, is it is it Jessica Williams? Um, who's uh, who's uh, um, the, uh, she recruits Dan Fogler. Oh, I, I, I don't From know. the Daily Show. Oh, yeah, I don't know. I, I like the character. Um, yeah. yeah, she she's like the yeah this wizard recruiter who uh, brings Dan Fogler into the fold. Yeah, it's Jessica Williams. Jessica Williams. All yeah, right. she's I think she's new, at least completely new. Yeah, uh, uh, we have but, Newt Scamander's a personal assistant who I think was in the last one but didn't have a major role. Yeah, and she's named um, a pe- pe- Pepper. Notably, or notably uh, absent is Catherine Waterston, who was the second lead in yeah, the first she, two uh, films, and was kind of a romantic interest for the Eddie Redmayne. She character. was a romantic interest for the Eddie Redmayne uh, character. From what I understand, uh, Catherine Waterston, the actress, just didn't want to be associated with J.K. Rowling anymore. Yeah, and that she actually she like saying. made um, put her put a, put her foot down and said yeah. like that what she's doing isn't cool. And as a result, her character is in the movie for about forty five seconds, and I'm pretty sure some of it's CGI or reused footage. There's one shot of her in a crowd, and then there's like uh, like three lines later in the movie. Yeah. Uh, and and then there's Dumbledore himself, and, he, and he's played by Jude Law. Yeah, uh, they gather in a train. This yeah. little little ragtag band. They say we got to stop this guy, but he can see the future. So we have to do the confuse a cat limited thing. <laughs> we just have to do a bunch of random shit, and that way he'll never he'll never see us coming. If he see like yeah. has foresight. Uh, he'll not know what we're up to. Now, in screenwriting terms, when you're a writer and you give yourself a, 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 an idea like that, so mm. basically what we have to do is a bunch of random, confusing stuff to distract the villain. What you're basically saying is, we wrote a bunch of random, confusing stuff and we want it all to make we, sense in retrospect. No no way of connecting at all. So there so are it, a lot of disconnected yeah. set pieces yeah. where I don't know where they are. Yep. I don't know what the function of that place is. Yep. I don't know why they went there. Yep. But there's a lot of tense stuff going on there. Yeah. There's a there's it's a whole scene where like put Newt Scamander has to do some kind of weird prison breakout there's, where he has to okay. do interpretive dance with scorpion spiders. Yeah, there. I don't. Scene, I don't remember yeah. why we had to do they, that. They all split up. There is one character who has like an actual role in this scheme where yeah. he has to infiltrate uh, Grindelwald's inner circles. Yeah, yeah. That and actually. It's like, it's yeah. like I, I I want to get into you. It's like, well, I'm a wizard. I read your thoughts, and you want vengeance. 
because I killed your sister. So I'm going to so, remove I'm, those so, memories. So he like puts his wand to his brain and like pulls all the memories of his sister out of his brain yeah. and says, now you are my slave kind of thing. And, yeah, um, pretty evil. Yeah, evil bad guy good, stuff. Good evil bad yeah, guy stuff, just, yeah. uh, He's Mads Mikkelsen, so he doesn't cackle, but he might as well have. Mads Mikkelsen, I will say this. It, there's there's two people I think are really giving good in this movie. One is Dan Fogler, who again, is just the heart and soul of this whole fucking thing. And the other is Mads Mikkelsen, who could do this shit in his sleep. Yeah, he just, you want, you want smarmy, sensual... Mm quiet bad guy mads will do that he plays, and he'll be great he, he's kind of a go-to i feel like when he's a go-to for heavies like he's always giving us all but his characters aren't necessarily interesting on the page that's how i feel about dr uh, strange like he's good in it but yeah, who, yeah, was, who, who, who i was gonna say who cares? he was in like in a thor movie or dr yeah, strange or something dr. Strange. Yeah, but like right. seriously no one remembers that bad guy he's not yeah. a very interesting bad guy he's just um, interesting because mads mickelson's playing him but yeah there that sequence it is uh where eddie redmayne uh his his brother has somehow found himself in this, this like, oubliette. Yeah. This, like, spiral-carved tube of earth. Yeah. And it's very dimly lit, so it's hard to see things. And yeah. you go in with a lantern that's powered by, like, a little lightning bug. And if your lantern goes out, you are attacked by a 100-foot scorpion that lives at the bottom of the pit. Right. Not a uh, great system for, for prison maintenance. And... I don't know if he was arrested or how he got into that prison. It's very I confusing. kind of missed it. It's very confusing. But it's this big dirt pit, but it also has like a check-in desk. Yeah. Which is really bizarre. There's like one guy there mm-hmm. who just like, with a bunch of cubbies behind him, is like, I gotta take those critters and your magic wand. You mm-hmm. can't go in there with that stuff. And he can just go in there and talk to prisoners face to face. Yeah. It's also infested with those little scorpion things. And he yeah. figures out that... If he dances, they'll mimic his dance moves. Yeah, which is the, I, maybe I the only music. Maybe the only like genuinely whimsical, like oh, what a fanciful idea. Yeah, kind of thing I can the, remember from da- this film. Dance away the scorpions. That's yeah. that's kind of fun. Uh, and and other and then there's a lot of scenes in uh, like fancy dining halls and yeah, like where, where wizard politics chambers. is happening. Yeah, and there's yeah. a lot of plates and dishes yeah. floating around. And yeah. Dan Fogler is has to pose or at least try to look like he's going to assassinate Grindelwald so he can be arrested for some plot function that I wasn't able to discern. No, he did that by accident. They gave him a wand so that he'd, so that he'd fit in. It doesn't work. It's but just just, stick, it yeah. just gives him something to look at so that he fits in. Uh, he's in love with a woman named Queenie who at the end of the last movie uh, decided to team up with Grindelwald. And in the first scene she's in in this movie, she already regrets it. Mm-hmm. So we don't have, so that entire plot point kind of goes nowhere. Uh, also, Ezra Miller is in it. Remember Ezra Miller? Uh, he uh, wants to kill Dumbledore because we found out he's a Dumbledore. Uh, and uh, that will be dealt with in about a scene and a half. Uh, and it's and it's a weird psychedelic thing where yeah. they like go into pocket dimensions and yeah. have fights that aren't taking place in reality. It's very Doctor uh, Strange, actually. That, yeah, it was another conceit of Doctor Strange. We can have yeah. all the destruction we want if it's not real. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and the whole conceit in the first Fantastic Beasts movie yeah. was that this Ezra Miller character was like the most destructive wizard of all time. And he like blew up a mountain or something. Potentially very, very, very dangerous. Yeah, And yeah, here he's just this supporting character in the bad guy's retinue. Yeah. Here's, here's what allegedly has happened behind the scenes. And I could have told you this if you hadn't mm. told me this. Warner Brothers is starting to worry about the popularity of this franchise waning. So mm. they decided to make this film in such a way that if this is the last one, it kind of feels like it. 
and it does. Yeah, they uh, race wrap, through wrap the Ezra Miller up. stuff. They drop as many plot lines as they possibly can. It has kind of like a mega happy ending for everyone who gets out of it, so that it feels kind of like, ah, oh, we got to this point. Um, everything is more or less resolved. If they wanted to continue it, they could. There's enough pieces left over. But this doesn't have that usual feeling where, well... There's still one thing that could that's gonna happen in the future, like uh, Voldemort's still out there or yeah. something like that. No, it's, everything's weirdly rushed and wrapped up. And again, we've talked a lot about the context surrounding this thing. And even if that wasn't a thing, even if J.K. Rowling hadn't said any of that stuff, if this was the film that we got, it would suck. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good film. There's no. a couple of things I like in it. There's a couple well, of sequences that are kind of neat. There, there's there's, a there's lot an idea pro- or two. Yeah, the, there's a lot of uh, interesting production design if you yeah. can see it because the, yeah. the photography is awful. I kind of uh, like that when they go to Germany, they're, they're clearly like right out of like a German expressionist like industrial, yeah, like yeah. weird oppressive metropolis mm. area. That was kind of fun. Uh, and uh, the the uh, climax takes place in uh, in. Uh, in Bhutan, so yeah, yeah it's because they can teleport anywhere. These wizards, yeah, so they all, all, all these different spells. Uh, there's a, a little bit of a conceit where uh, Newt's commander carries a, a suitcase, and the suitcase is like a pocket dimension. He can climb inside. And there's like yeah. a whole and there's uh, a whole zoo, zoo in, in there inside yeah. a suitcase. I love that idea. That's a fun mm-hmm. idea. And even within the zoo, yeah. there's like these little miniature pocket dioramas where all of the the animals can live. So there's yeah. like a, an entire planet worth of land really inside cool. a suitcase. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of cool. I also like, you know, when people kind of climb out of the suitcase. I think that looks really fun. Uh, there's a little conceit where they make duplicates of it and try to throw people off. There's a few yeah. scenes that take place at Hogwarts. So we get to yeah. see what the school looks like in the 1920s. It's an ancient castle. It looks the same. It looks exactly the fucking same. <laughs> like, we don't need to be there mm-hmm. at all. We just don't. Yeah. We don't uh, need to go to Honey Dukes. We don't need any of this There crap. was a, a reference to cockroach clusters. Oh yeah, uh, Dan Fogler's like, oh, those kids gave me these great co- these candies, and he's like, oh, I don't like cl- cockroach clusters. Cockroach cluster was a candy from Monty Python. If you remember the uh, disgusting chocolatier, I don't. You're right. Yeah, well, the, uh, uh, what, what's this one? Cockroach cluster anthrax ripple. You're right. Uh, yeah, and of course, I, crunchy frog. Crun- yeah, crunchy. The first one was crunchy frog. Yeah. It's like, and what's this one? Ram's bladder cup. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Fresh, juicy chunks of fresh Cornish ram's bladder. Where's the fun in that? (laughs) Emptied, steamed, flavored with sesame seeds, whipped into a fondue, (laughs) and garnished with lark's vomit. The whole point is that they're gross and they're all really gross. Well, the the joke is that the chocolatier thinks this is the most delightful thing imaginable. Right. And garnished with lark's vomit. That, that's really disgusting. Oh, no, it's wonderful. I actually missed the Monty Python reference, so I'm glad you mentioned yeah, it. Yeah, they, they, they made, they made a around. reference to something called a cockroach cluster, which I, I like to think that. is a very direct Python reference. Uh, maybe Monty, maybe one of the members of Monty Python was a wizard. It's, uh, they're they got, all wizards. Oh, of course they, they were. They're yeah. all magic. Um, hmm. Anyway, um, so here's, here's the thing. Uh, it's confusing. It's hmm. rushed. If you had any investment in the storylines or characters from previous films... They don't get a lot of screen time, if any. Uh, it's a momentarily entertaining in fits and starts, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work 
as an adventure because it's dreary and it's kind of hard to get behind any of the characters because it's just stretching itself so thin. Um, it doesn't work as a Newt's commander story. He's taking a back seat here. Mm-hmm. Catherine Watterson is taking a huge back seat. Um, it doesn't really work in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. It's just, it feels like they're just scrambling to put shit together. It's, I, I don't think anybody really understands what where the charm of this series lies anymore. Yeah. Uh, there's no wonderment. Uh, yeah. it, it's all, we're, we're, I guess we're supposed to be attached to these characters. And I, that's a big mistake that's been happening. Yeah. G- going all the way back to something like The Empire Strikes Back, mm. where a lot of our affection for the characters is sort of... Assumed. Assumed, like carried over from your affection that yeah. they actually bothered to grow in a first film. And repeat viewings of those things sort of made your affection grow for those characters. So by the time they bring them back, mm-hmm. your affection is now at this frenzy level and just seeing them is supposed to get an emotional reaction. Yeah. Dumbledore, okay. Dumbledore, sure. A, a, sure. a well-known we, character. People like Dumbledore, yeah. But all of these other characters are all new. And I feel like apart from Eddie Redmayne, mm-hmm. who is actually... He's he's bringing it. Yeah, I think he's playing an interesting character. He's playing an introverted action hero. Yeah, yeah. that's an interesting choice he's, for he's, a character. He's, I mean, he's, I feel he's like... kind and he's gentle and he's decent. He's not yeah. an action hero. Either. No, he's, he's very quiet. He does. He's not very outgoing. So he's very I, and bookish. I, and I, think, I kind of think that's an interesting idea. And I think Eddie Redmayne is playing that kind of a part pretty well. Yeah, uh, he's not in, in this movie enough, and that ethos doesn't bleed into the rest of the movie. Apart yeah. from that, none of this big gaggle of characters is making any kind of impression. Uh, Dan Fogler. Pardon? And Dan Fogler. And Dan Fogler. Dan, Dan Fogler. Fogler. And by the, ha- end, by the end of this movie, he's actually like bringing a heck of a lot of heart and yeah. he has some sweet moments with There's Queenie a moment where and, I yeah. half expect Dan Fogler to emerge as the wizard president or something. Like, You're it's like, going to be like, all about him. <laughs> and I kind of hoped it would have been because here's the thing. This is, the big. I think, the biggest problem that this series of film has had within themselves, not the outside external circumstances. Mm. Within themselves... They never had a focus. The focus was always uh, on too many things at once. It's never really been entirely about Newt Scamander and his animals. That would have been enough. That's enough for a movie. You, that's fine. We're we're good there. It also has to be about wizard politics. It also has to be about Ezra Miller. It also has to be about Grindelwald. It also has to be about Dumbledore. The closest thing we've had to a consistent through line has been dan fogler the muggle not a child like a like a guy who's like in or approaching middle age Mm. who's just got a good heart and just stumbled into some wizard shit and he's always brought the right energy to that he's always brought the right balance of uh sort of confusion but also you know bravery Mm. um i feel like the focus of these movies Probably should have been Newt and I forget the other name, Dan Fogler. Mm. Should have been those two. That's those are your two. Newt brings this guy along on these adventures. Bada bing. All of this other stuff just feels it's weird because it feels like padding and yet it is directly connected to all the previous films. So they're treating it like it's the most important stuff. It's always for me a distraction from the handful of characters I'm genuinely interested in and the premises that are unique to this franchise that we couldn't have had before. Mm. And as this franchise has gone on, it just became more and more like what we had before and it never found its own identity because it never found the right focus. 
Um, and I don't, I don't think they work. I think some work better than others. Yeah. You know, they're three films. They're, they can't all be exactly alike. Uh, but yeah, this, th- this sucked. <laughs> this is such a bummer. Like, and again, on top of everything, the shit going on around it doesn't help. Sometimes hurts the film contextually as you're looking at J.K. Rowling trying to earn bonus points for representation, given everything else going on, and in a way that can be easily cut from the film. You're just looking at it and like, okay, I can't even like watch the film now. You're distracting me with all the connections to reality that are unpleasant. Mm. Um, yeah, it's not a very good film. No. Uh, you want to talk about some horror movies? Sure, I saw a couple of those. Yeah, a couple of uh, uh, straight-to-streaming horror movies came out this week. I want to talk about, uh, for the first one, a film with a weird, f- kind of silly premise that I ended up really digging called <laughs> Choose or Die. <laughs> um, formerly called Cursor. Cursor, uh, it's, a, it's a double meaning, you see. Yeah, it, as in one who curses somebody, but also the cursor on your computer. Uh, choose or Die. Mm-hmm is a text-based adventure game yeah. from around 1983, back when uh, computer monitors were just green. Yeah. And uh, and couldn't do graphics at all. And these are, these are if you're familiar with the era, uh, you probably remember yeah, games like, I don't know, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or Zork. Uh, but if you're not, uh, back before video games had what we considered graphics. Like pictures and images. Yeah. Uh, but they could do text very easily, and they could do simple yes and, uh, simple uh, binary prompts, mm. which is you agree to do this thing, it tends to the story in this direction. You decide to do this thing, it takes yeah, the story the, in another the, direction. The, and they're basically the, interactive novels. The, the prompts would be like, you, you are standing in an all, like it's always in the second person. You are yeah. in a chamber, you know, moss drips from the wet dungeon walls. There are exits to the north and south, and there is a flask. And you type in, get flask, and it says, you cannot do that here. And then you say, go north. It says, you cannot do that here. And then you pick up your monitor and you smash it against the ground. Yeah. And then you go play checkers. Um, yeah, sometimes they the were like, sometimes they were really weirdly complicated. There mm-hmm. was, uh, there's a, um, another Netflix thing. It was from Black Mirror called, um, it wasn't Jabberwocky. What was it? Bandersnatch. Yeah. Which is kind of, a, which is kind of like this in like modern Netflix form. But basically, yeah, it's about people who find an old uh, sort of bootleg video game from the 1980s which is a text-based adventure. Uh, and every time you turn it on, it tells you where you are, but it's different every time you play it because it's basing it off of where you currently are right now. Mm-hmm. So, like, you are in your apartment. You are at the top of a tall tower if you're, like, on a, in, a, like a Skyrise or something like that. Uh, you are in a cave if you're in your man cave. And then it will give you a series of things to choose from. And very rapidly, you realize that the things that you choose from are affecting the people around you and will eventually give you an opportunity to decide the method of their demise. Mm. You might sometimes have a chance to save them. You might only be choosing how they're going to horribly die. And then it says, choose or die. Because if you don't choose anything, then presumably you'll die. No one ever takes that I was going to say, not, not a single point in this movie does someone even pause to think, Maybe I just won't choose and I'll die. Yeah. I'd and rather then maybe you die can say like, than somebody than kill someone. And that's a missed opportunity, I feel, because I feel like you could have at least had a thing like, I refuse to do anything. And then maybe like, you see like their nose and ears bleed or something like that. And like, okay, fine, I'll choose. Yeah. Maybe that would have been a good idea. But yeah. uh, the main character, uh, has, uh, she uh, has a sick mother. Yeah. And she's impoverished. Yep. 
Uh, and also grieving uh, the loss of a little brother who died uh, in an accident not that long before the beginning. Played by an actress named Iola Evans. Yeah. Uh, And yeah, she is uh, sort of investigating these old games. And she uh, fires it up when she's in a diner and uh, ends up in making her decisions, forcing the waitress to do really horrible things to herself. Yeah. And uh, before she realizes what's going on, the waitress has already started doing something that is basically self-mutilation. And it's really, really horrifying. And by the time she realizes what's happening, it's too late. She uh, she gets up to uh, help this woman and a man briefly appears out of nowhere to scream at her and then disappears again. Yeah. So this game can just warp reality to its own will. Sure. Um. There's no fucking rules. At Not all. really, no, no. <laughs> there, there's something about trying to find the source of the game. So she teams up with her best friend who's played by... Um, Asa Butterfield. Asa Butterfield. Who, yeah. I think he's actually really good in this movie. I think he is. He's, I think he's bringing um, everything he needs to bring here. And he, and what I admire is uh, they're best friends. He has a crush on her. He says to her that he has a crush on her, and yet they continue to be friends. Yeah. It's not like tension. It's not yeah. awkward. It's just like... He's not making it weird. She yeah. just knows that if she was ever interested in him, he'd be interested in her. And other than yeah. that, they're friends and they hang out. And I, he I doesn't like, like keep putting the moves on her and make it awkward. Yeah, yeah. I, I, like, yeah. I like their That's relationship. pretty healthy, I, I th- actually. I think Asa Butterfield is really sort of bringing a lot to, to this nothing role yeah. in this, quite frankly, completely stupid movie. It's a pretty silly film. <laughs> it's a silly film. <laughs> because yeah. the, the rules of this game don't make any sense. Not especially. Uh, no. they, they try to find the source of this. Uh, you're, somebody... There's, don't don't, there's a don't lot of, no. Without, there's don't a lot, give a lot of good scare happens. moments. A lot of weird yeah. sort of magic. Basically, things. every there's they have to play of... it every single day at the same time. So they have so basically wherever they are, even if they're not near a computer console, all of a sudden a TV will tell them the game is on, or yeah. their phone will say it. And now they have to do something. Then reality is warping around them. People they know are endangered, and they only have a short amount of time to make decisions mm-hmm. that will decide who lives and who dies, and w- in what horrible way. That will happen, yeah. and this leads to a series of set pieces, which mostly are pretty creepy. I mean, they're ridiculous, uh, they're, but they're I not... actually think they're they're kind of like they deal with some very unpleasant forms of physical violence that I think are it's... easy to like get mm. audiences with, but they work. You know, they're some, they're some stylistically fun... visually different yeah. every time. I appreciate I, I was, that. I was reminded of a, another really crappy cyber horror movie called Fear.com. Oh God! Do you remember Fear.com? I remember out, Fear.com. It came out in two thousand two, back you know when the dot com craze was yeah. like kind of booming. Fear.com uh, was about an evil website called Fear.com.com. Dot com, yeah. Because it turned out Fear.com was a real thing, and uh, they had already kind of made the movie, so mm-hmm. they called it Fear Dot com.com mm. oh. <laughs> the so title bad. the title of the film at least was just fear dot.com fear right but in the movie the it's title hilarious. of the film yeah. uh yeah and there's it's like it sucks you into like a, a tortured yeah. dimension fear.com yeah. um similar physics here uh there's a lot of fetishization of like old tech but in a way, clearly made by people who have never touched that tech. Yeah. Uh, I'm old enough that I use that kind of stuff, and I know how inaccurate it was. And there's this, uh, you know, a lot of fetishization of magnetic magnetic tape and yeah. VHS cassettes. Uh, and it also borrows a conceit from um, a friend request, that classic. <laughs> Oh, that there's Where, uh, that there's like that supernatural there's, code. There's like there's like witch code, the witch glyphs hidden in the code of the game, and that's why yeah. it's evil and can affect reality. That's fun. <laughs> I think it's, that's silly. It's, it's, it also reminds me of this awful, awful, unbelievably bad cyber thriller called Stay Alive. 
I never saw Stan. Stan oh my <laughs> god, it's so embarrassing. Talk about something from like people who've like never played video games before. Like, okay, we've got this game. It's called Stay Alive. It's supposed to be the best horror game ever. Okay, everyone come over and we're gonna play it. And Frankie Muniz is sitting there and he's warming up his thumbs. Like he's doing like shadow boxing with his like controller, but he has no controller, just so he's ready to play that game. Uh, all of the conversations about video games in that movie make no sense whatsoever. Uh, and the premise is, however you die in the game, that's how you die in real life. Mm. This uh, At least choose or die, it's like a bootleg game. Stay Alive was supposed to be like a mass-marketed game. How did they beta test that? I've never understood. Like, hey, Charlie died by falling into a spike pit in the game, but in real life he got hit by a car. We gotta fix that. <laughs> that, that doesn't work at all. <laughs> We're gonna have to burn the midnight oil. To get that fixed before we send submitted to Sony, <laughs> like it's just a really stupid so, film. What what do you rate a game that kills people? I, I mean, it does its job. I don't know. The controls work, so you kind of got to give it like right, a seven. Rated T for teen. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So here, here I, I, I think like, like here I feel like they're aware that the premise is a little goofy. Hmm. Here I think they're aware that uh, you know we're only here. Because this idea gives us an opportunity for some fun set pieces and some fun sort of ways to tell a story. There's a cute bit where they have to like drive upstate to find the investigation. They do investigate like the source of the video game. Mm. And uh, I guess budget was, was kind of low. So instead of filming the car ride, they made it like a video game. They like shot it like a, a top thought, down. That was kind of a cute like, bit. It's yeah. Like spy hunter. Yeah. Okay yeah. Game. That's cute. All mm. of that stuff is here's a movie which has a ridiculous premise, but it's being presented with a lot of energy and a lot of personality. And the cast is really fun for the most part. And some of the deaths are pretty memorable, and I enjoyed them. And I can't be mad at how silly this is, because I feel like the movie gets that it's silly. I, I, I suppose. I just, you know, it, it didn't have to be this quite this silly. <laughs> uh, there, there's uh, Eddie, Eddie Marsan, the actor Eddie Marsan, uh, an actor I really admire and yeah. has been in a lot of trash. Yeah. Uh, very talented. He was really good in the Mike Lee film Happy Go Lucky. Okay. That's sort of like his, his moment to shine. He's actually, he's worked with Mike Lee. He's a, a very talented actor, but he'll show up as like, a, a third tier villain in Deadpool two right. from time to time. Uh, yeah. And here he, he plays sort of like a villainous type of a character. And I feel like even he is not given uh, like, like enough leeway to like really dig into any of these he, roles. These characters, he plays, aren't that a character, he plays a character who is clearly, we can get a real actor for this character because we're only going to need them for two days. Right. And so it's just, if we we get Eddie Marsan, cool. He's a serious actor. He'll give us some legitimacy. If we get Bruce Campbell, cool. That'll work too. If we get Chris Rock, cool. That'll like literally any male actor based on the context of the story could have played that character. Basically. He's just, they were able to get Eddie Marsan that weekend. He was the one who was free. Um, but, uh, I feel like this movie. Here's here's how I feel like this movie, and I and I get your point mm. that it doesn't need to be this ludicrous. I feel like this is clearly like a movie that is thinking in terms of a franchise. Like, there's definitely the premise is enough that if we get some creative filmmakers, we could keep this going for a few sequels, mm. you know, and just do weirder, crazy, choose your pick your poison kind of at death sequences. Uh, but I feel like tonally they. Skipped Nightmare on Elm Street and went right to Freddy's Dead. 
<laughs> That's what they did. They just skipped mm. to like the kind of silly one where like the protagonists don't want to die, so we care whether they live or die theoretically, but everything else going on around them is absurd. Right into honestly clever Robert England cameo. Uh the way they incorporate bit, Robert England I, I is pretty the, funny. Yeah. I liked the uh the initial uh conceit of the movie is uh they're not just sort of investigating this game because they're interested. It turns out that there's an unclaimed cash prize yeah. attached to this game that was put out into the ether back in the 1980s. Yeah, like no and one so ever there's... no one ever beat it before, but if you beat it, you get a code, you call in, you can get money. And, and they're they, both, they and think... everyone's like kind of impoverished, so they decided to go yeah, for so it. Yeah, they, they decided to go. I, I like that. I like yeah. that conceit. And that's where Robert England comes in. You call in on this line and you hear his voice. Yeah, they cl- uh, someone clearly paid Robert England like 200 bucks to like <laughs> play the voice on the end of this video game call. And he even says, hi, I'm Robert England. Literally phoning in his role. Yeah. Um, uh, you're talking about, you're comparing this to something like Freddy's Dead. Freddy's Dead, also a pretty ridiculous movie. Exactly. I think it's really fun just because it's so crazy. It's got all these like weird imaginative visuals. That whole uh, Nightmare on Elm Street film, even uh, those all those movies. Uh, even the bad ones, like Nightmare on Elm Street 5. 5 is not, pretty bad. It's a pretty bad movie, but it's got a lot of crazy weird I, stuff I've in seen it. 5 like, like three times. I couldn't tell you the plot of that movie. It doesn't have a I plot. I have no idea what happens in that film. None. <laughs> it's the one where there, there's like... Uh, there's a dream child. The dream child. That's and, it. There's a dream child and that's not good. And, and then and the, someone uh, turns into a motorcycle, I think, and then it's yeah, over. Somebody gets wrapped <laughs> into a motorcycle. No, you forgot the scene where um, Freddy is like eating people's souls and feeding them to the unborn child and they take the form in one scene as like little sausages on a pizza and they're like you see the human faces oh, on the pizza <laughs> oh, see that's the thing that's in that movie I forgot about that that's how confusing that movie is um, uh, but that's because of all of that, those weird wild visuals at least like it's partially watchable I'm not going to give it a pass, but it's, yeah. you know, we can watch the crazy. You, don't, you didn't think Choose Die was even watchable? I thought it was fun. Uh, it, it wasn't crazy enough. I've, you know, yeah, I see something bar, like you see something to... like Freddy's Dead, which has the video game sequence, and it yeah. has you know, I said three, a 3D sequence. I it's, said tonally. All right, tonally, it's there's, on there's, there's actually level. like jokes and humor. There, there's not a lot of not a lot of that yeah. going on in, in Choose or Die. Okay, I guess I like this more than you did. Yeah, I, I, for me, this was like. You know, the bar was low, but they jumped over it by a, by a solid margin. They had right. some some characters I actually gave a damn about that a premise, which was ridiculous, but they knew when to embrace it and when to just say, look, just go with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, some of the sequences are kind of fun. It's clear that they were working on a budget, and I think they made do, honestly. I think the movie is a very entertaining watch, and if, as the movie ends and suggests that sequels could come, if there's another sequel... Bring it. Maybe you could even do it better next time. Maybe you can work out the kinks. That mm-hmm. would be great. So I had a good time. Uh, I'm curious how you felt since we differ on that one uh, about the new film on Shutter, starring Alicia Cuthbert, mm-hmm. called The Seller. The Seller with a C, not like the guy who's like the, the trying seller. to sell you some hairbrushes door yeah. to door. Like no, no, it's, a, it's the uh, basement. Yeah, Alicia Cuthbert. I haven't seen her in a movie in a while. Um, she, uh, I, I first noticed her way back when she was on Twenty Four about yeah, twenty years ago. Played and, uh, Kiefer Sutherland's daughter. Yeah, now now she's playing now she's playing the mom. Um, 
in, in uh, The Cellar. It's an Irish horror film. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a, a wonderful satanic thriller if you've never heard of satanic thrillers before. If you've never seen a movie where a family moves into a creepy house and then creepy stuff happens and then they research the creepy house and then more creepy stuff happens. If there's you've a, never seen that before, this might get you. The, the, there's a sequence in this movie where... Um, a family moves into a house, uh, into yeah. a house in Ireland. They bought it sight unseen. They got it yeah. at an auction. Yeah. Uh, so and it's, and it's and giant. It's, it's giant and it's furnished. It's got books in it. Yeah. Uh, just uh, every. It's all stocked up, and they move in. Uh, young uh, young boy is about ten. Uh, is kind of okay with it. Teenage mm. girl hates everything about it. Uh, Alicia Cuthbert is mom. Irish man is dad. Uh, <laughs> he, he he gets to say he gets to say the skeptical stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's all in your head. There's a scene where, uh, and there's like... It's a coincidence. There's like some glyphs and mysterious phrases sort of like inscribed yeah. in the walls. And there's, there's like a, numbers. Some Latin over here out. and a mathematical yeah. equation in the yeah. basement. and uh, That's and, probably and, not and, good. And it all looks really cool, actually. It's a good I love, house. I love the design of the house and yeah. I love the way the glyphs look. There's a scene. I'd, I'd, I'd live in that house. That looks what, awesome. One of those little glyphs is, is a pentagon. Just yeah. the shape, the pentagon. It's like in the wood above a door frame. It looks really yeah. cool. Like nice, nice design. And the dad looks at it and he notices, wait a minute. If you were to put a triangle on each of these five points, you create form a star. <gasps> he, a uh, pentagram. Yeah, our minds have been collectively <laughs> like, blown. And I'll say this. The filmmakers are doing their darndest and really succeeding in trying to make that look as shocking as possible. They clearly know how to... Yeah. yeah. They know how to tell this story. They just don't have a story. I I feel like (laughs) the filmmakers are actually doing an excellent job. There is a lot of good sound design. I love the photography in this movie. I love Mm. the editing and the pacing of this movie. Yeah. There is the initial, like... Uh, instigating incident is yeah, actually really terrifying. Where like a teenager disappears. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that whole a, sequence. She's is on really the scary. phone with her mom, and they're doing something. And honestly, the the combination of one of the one of the well, great way to build like suspense in a horror movie is repetition, where mm. you're gonna do something, and every single time you do it, something happens, and mm. you know, and you get comfortable with it. This becomes your reality. It's very difficult to establish mundanity mm. within a horror movie, which is what you need to surprise people. Mm-hmm. If you're already on edge, anything shocking is just like, well, yeah, I expected that to happen. Mm. But if you're like at home alone for like three hours and nothing happens, and then all of a sudden you walk into your bedroom and there's a killer with a knife, you mm. go, ah! Yeah, that's scary. <laughs> so like, But you can't like get people to relax. So one way you can do that is to do something repetitious in the film so that people get uh, comfortable with the rhythm. Mm. They find a way to do that, and then as we're going through the rhythm, and we're literally counting one, mm. two, three, and we're only going to count to ten, and then just the counting keeps going, <laughs> and you're not supposed to do that, well, the, and there's uh, one shot that looks a little weird, and you're not sure what that means, and that bit, admittedly pretty creepy. Yeah, uh, there are a few a few creepy bits, like uh, yeah. there's something to do with like shadows and darkness, the mm. way that the filmmakers are actually to film, like uh, point a camera at like an empty room and there's sh- like a shadow behind it. Yeah. Uh, they frame that up in such a way that it just looks scarier than in your average horror movie. Uh, there's scary stuff that, that scene where uh, Roshi's counting, 
um, the the teenage girl is like claustrophobic. She's afraid of the dark. Yeah. And uh, she's locked herself at the top of the, the cellar stairs. Yeah. And it's completely dark in there. And there's a switch down at the bottom of the stairs. Yeah. Uh, she calls her mom and says, I'm stuck in the basement. I'm terrified. I don't know what to do. Well, this, and, and uh, she's stuck in the basement earlier. What happens is there's a power outage while mom and dad are out. Yeah. And, and she's and, like, she calls her mom and says, what do I do? And she says, well, there's a circuit breaker in the oh, basement. And she has to go down, go d- down into the dark basement. And she doesn't and, want to because she got locked in there before and it was kind of traumatic yeah, for her. So, uh, her, her mom was on the phone and her, her mom and her dad work as like Instagram influencers. So they're, yeah. oh, like, they're, they, they're they, like marketers and they're yeah, working uh, with that. Yeah. Uh, so they're at a meeting and she just, she's on the phone with her, her daughter and says, okay, just t- count each stairs. There's 10 stairs. Just count, count each step. Okay. And you know, as, as she's going and we hear it on the other end of the phone and when she gets to 11, you freak the fuck out and she keeps yeah. on going and you can, can you freak up the freak, freak the fuck out. And then when she gets home, the teenage daughter's missing. Yeah. And, and they don't know what happened. It's a pretty creepy yeah. setup to the story, um, and it makes you think everything's going to be pretty creepy mm. and uh, and stylish and effective. And mm. unfortunately, again, the presentation's strong. Yeah. It looks scary. The actors the, are giving uh, it their all. It's the actual content of the story. It's the mm. actual mystery of the house. It's the actual uh, uh, build-up to the scares. All of the investigation stuff. All of that is spectacularly unspectacular. It, well, it's it's just really uncreative. Yeah. is the problem. It's been done in, in a lot of thr- uh, yeah. you know, satanic thrillers for decades now. Yeah, they don't uh, really so bring their uh, own flavor to it. They don't really bring their own. The, like... the, the flavor they bring to it, and I kind of appreciated this before they started get, going whole hog into like the mm. satanic imagery. And it's like, oh, look, it looks like this star. And he likes looks in a book. Look, it looks like this star with the goat head in it. Have you ever heard of Baphomet? And then he like looks down in the book. It's actually Satan. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We 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 get it. We've look, seen a movie before. I've, I've, how have you not I've, seen I've, a movie before? I bought a heavy metal record when I was 10. Yeah, right? how do you I don't know not, what this is. <laughs> like everyone makes weird. There's a bit where it's like um, mom is like, looking up and she's taking like a really long time to look up three Latin words on Google. Yeah. Like three. And one of them is like pretty much exactly what it is in English too. So it's really weird. Uh, and so she's, and then she says, Hey son of mine, uh, when your sister disappeared, did you do anything weird? And he was like, yeah, we listened to that creepy vinyl record over there in the corner. And I was like, cool. Thanks. Then she goes back to Google and she doesn't check the record until the until next la- day. Later in the movie. Like yeah. later in the movie. I understand wanting to finish your Google search and then go to the record. Mm. Your daughter is missing and that might be important. We're just going to let that go. What is with this? And so I feel like there's a lot of good individual moments. The the filmmakers are capable of way more than this movie gives us. Because I was genuinely scared by a completely fallow screenplay. They actually got a few moments. Uh, Just a a lot of good scary moments. And there's a a wonderful climax as well. Some really good visuals in the climax. It wasn't that I think there was a lot of really good sound design. There's a lot of like whispers and scratches throughout the movie. They're clearly bringing their all to a script that doesn't really deserve it. No. And it uh, looks, which is unfortunate because it's written and directed by the same guy. Yeah. Uh, uh, he, good director. Maybe, maybe do somebody else's screenplay next I, time. Yeah. Cause seriously, very, very strong direction overall, but this is a very formulaic script. It just mm. doesn't have that. It, it, I think it's something like uh, sinister, which is also mm. about house moves into creepy, a uh, family moves into creepy house discover a creepy thing, does research into creepy thing. They even have a Skype call with Vincent D'Onofrio as they're like a guy who explains the monster to you. But they figured out, okay, we have to do something kind of distinct here. And they come up with, I find an old box of home movies mm-hmm. that are all absolutely terrifying. And that's your in. That's the thing that makes that mm-hmm. movie distinct. Even though otherwise it's a very similar to the Amityville horror mm-hmm. or the conjuring or a million other things kind of like it. Well, 
something I appreciate. I, if I can link this one back to um, back to uh, choose and choose or die. Okay. Uh, it's been really fascinating because I I grew up uh, watching horror movies where all of this uh, e- evil information was found like in the occult section of in the basement of the library, like these really rare old books. Yeah, like, that was the medium from which we got this information. Yeah, those were forbidden and, yeah. texts. So exactly. You couldn't, just, and, you couldn't just look that up and, the, in the dictionary you bought from the from the grocery store. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the book goes back many centuries. You know, go back to the, the Gutenberg Bible, the actual bound text. So you get an old book; it has this sort of mystique about it. It's yeah. an ancient technology. I find it. Or uh, if we go to a little bit more modern, I, I watched uh, the Evil Dead movies, and there are mm. evil words that come off of a reel-to-reel tape player, yeah. which aren't used anymore, and they were yeah. kind of moribund by the time I was a young child. Yeah, yeah, but it's still got yeah. this kind of a level of antiquity to it. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, I've now lived long enough that an Apple IIe is now a satanic object. Yeah. Like, that is an ancient thing that has forbidden knowledge hidden inside <laughs> of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, it happened, yeah. Mm-hmm. A cassette. Uh, yeah, you know, I, like, a Betamax is the, evil I, it as was, fuck. It, it really kind of, like, broke my brain a little bit when I saw the uh, American version of The Ring. It's about a cursed video cassette. Yeah. It's like, I well, I got those. Oh, oh the movie, uh, the one that really is uh, Rings, the more recent one that they came out where they tried to reboot it, literally uh, opens with a guy at, like, a yard sale or, like, a rummage sale mm-hmm. or a flea market. And uh, he's with his, like, younger girlfriend, mm. and he finds a VHS cassette, and he has to explain to her what it is. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, really? I, I think kids know what that is. Yeah, but, uh, I, mean, I know. I could identify. When I was a kid, I could identify an 8-track. Yeah. I couldn't tell you how it worked, but I understood what it was. Just plug it right in. It, yeah. It, it sticks out of the player. You can even see the label yeah. while it's playing. Boom. Was, that, was, that was the advantage of an 8-track. You always see what's in your player. Ah, that was the most important thing. Mm. <laughs> I'm so glad they prioritized that. How many that. tracks were on an eight track? Nine? Yes, exactly. Okay. Nine. What if they're what uh, if they're long? <laughs> what if they're like five minute tracks? Or like can they always it's always eight no matter how long actually, the song is? I don't, actually, no, no, Could the they standard, fit in twelve if they were really short? I don't know the standard running time in it of an eight track tape. Because okay. I never tinkered with them. I just had audio yeah. cassettes. That that was my tech. And my tech is now ancient tech for this generation. Yeah, it's fun. I'm eager to see the first movie about a cursed flip phone, or uh, um, or or cursed smartphone. Yeah, cursed BlackBerry. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, it's, it's coming up. It's James Wan's BlackBerry. Oh. <laughs> you don't understand when you push the buttons, it eats your thumbs. <laughs> um, or, so, uh, yeah. or, or, or we're gonna get to. Um, I don't know, it's some obscure thing. Uh, um, the Bick for Her, the Killer Pens. What? Killer Quibby, what are they like? Oh my God, failed Quibby would be a great thing to be like, you don't understand. We, had, in, to t- we had to stop Quibby. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was unhealthy, it was killing back, people. Back in, back in 2020, there was briefly a thing called Quibby. It was the most <laughs> cursed streaming service <laughs> we ever constructed. What's a streaming service? I'm glad you asked, Bartleby. <laughs> in the in the late in the twenty in the 2010s and 2020s, uh, humans had a brief dalliance with streaming services before they realized that physical media was always the best way to go. Oh, that sounds scary. It was. You never knew where you could watch True Lies. Um, we're off on a tangent. Uh, this here's the deal. The seller is. 
It's interesting because choose or die. You argue that it's like not good, mm. but it's still kind of weird. It's kind of an odd duck film. Yeah, here it's well constructed, but it's not it's, interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, so I, I think we have two halves of the same same coin. No, yeah. they're, they're I, I, bad in different ways. Maybe I was a little kinder to choose or die because I watched that second in the same day. Oh, I suppose so. Because the seller was just I, the seller was a bit of a snooze. Like there's a couple of good bits early on, and then it just lost me really fast. What I appreciate, you know, choose or die has some interesting gore moments. It has a stupid conceit. The more we learn about what this uh, evil game is up to and what what it can do to you and yeah. why it was brought into being, it just gets dumber. Yeah, uh, and Never once was I frightened or disturbed by the gore. Mm, there's one bit with glass that the, kind of freaked me out. There's a, a, a bit with glass, because it goes a little slow. Yeah. Uh, there are moments in the cellar that are frightening. Okay. They actually bothered to set things up in a scary way, and there's like some spooky visuals, and you know, actually, uh, the, the way the house looks is pretty cool. I think there's a lot of cool visual stuff in it that make it feel like an actual horror movie. Right. It's actually bothering to try to scare me, even though... I know what a Satan movie is, guys. <laughs> I heard an Iron Maiden song once. I'm there. Fair enough. Yeah. So, so I'm a little bit kinder to the seller because it actually does what a horror movie is supposed to do. And that's scary a little All bit. Right. All right. Well, one last thing we want to talk about uh, this week on Critically Acclaimed is a movie that has actually been re-released to theaters, which they're doing more often now. They recently re-released The Godfather. Yeah. Uh, into like actual like cin- not just like one night only in your locals like whatever it's like no like in theaters you yeah, can just not watch The like Godfather like Fathom events yeah that's pretty cool actually and uh, so uh, they decided to clean up and re-release David Lynch's most recent feature film which came out way back in 2006 that is called Inland Empire. It stars Laura Dern as... As many different characters. Well, it, 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 the way that David Lynch described this movie, and um, this is one of those David Lynch movies where explaining the plot's a little tricky. Uh, David Lynch described it as a woman in trouble. <laughs> well, uh, That's it, it. That's the whole plot. Yeah. She, she plays a woman in trouble, and boy That's, is uh, she. He described Eraserhead. What is Eraserhead? What is it about? It's a dream of dark and troubling things. Things, yeah, that's descriptive. A woman in trouble, as in yeah. Inland Empire. Uh, this is a boldly experimental movie that David Lynch put together uh, on, like, as he went along. Yeah. Uh, the idea was uh, there is a little bit of a story where um, mm. Jeremy Irons plays a film director who's mm-hmm. making a movie called On High, um, on on high, high in Blue, in Blue Tomorrows. Yeah. And, uh, it is, is a remake of a movie that was famously never finished yeah, they never because f- allegedly the production was cursed. And yeah, so he's trying to remake it. And so there's this idea that this production may also be cursed. Um, Laura Dern uh, Laura plays Dern an is, actress yeah. who was cast in the film. And uh, over the course of the movie, her connection to reality begins to waver. Yeah, she, she kind of... Uh, what, what Jeremy the, the the language Jeremy Irons uses is uh, it was the previous production was cursed because they found something inside the story. Mm. It's very very ominous yeah. and uh, yeah, Laura Dern plays the lead actress. She, she's playing Laura Dern more or less. Yeah, uh, and she kind of vanishes into not just the movie but a, a lot of different movies simultaneously. Yeah. And the way it worked is David Lynch would call up Laura Dern and say, hey, come over to my house. I have an idea. And she'd come over. It's like, what should I wear? Just wear a, a, wear a blue dress. And I'm going to have you, like, climb through the woods at night. And I'm just going to film you doing that. And, okay, what, what is... And Laura Dern totally game. Just says, yeah. okay, I'm going to do this. 
uh, and uh, now we're going to go and uh, you're going to be a Polish sex worker in this scene. And I want you to sort of like read some of these lines, but you can also improvise yeah. a little bit. And we're going to film that scene where you're a Polish sex worker being interrogated and talking about your horrible life. And over the course of all of these experiments, and they, they were not connected in David Lynch's mind. He's just filming these things that sort of came to him. These ideas would come yeah, to him. Yeah, kind of this stream was, of consciousness. This was yeah. about the time when he was getting, started, just first started getting into like meditation, like transcendental meditation. Oh no, he been into that bit for a while actually. Mm-hmm. Well, he, yeah. he was publishing his book around the time in uh, Inland Empire. I'm just saying out, he'd been so, doing it for a right. bit. Yeah, but he he talked a lot about when he talks about transcendental meditation about how it's a way to sort of tap into like Plato's realm of ideas. That's where ideas are coming from. So it was like really kind of opening his mind in new ways, and he was really high on it for a while. He he doesn't talk about it so much anymore. Uh, and then at the end of that, he assembled all of these little shorts, and what emerged. From this weird, ex- and he also included a couple shorts that he had shot for mm. his website. There's a, a sitcom with rabbit characters. Yeah, that was something that was pre-existing that he worked it worked its way into Inland Empire. And it's really creepy and weird. Yeah, <laughs> it's really creepy and weird. Uh, he 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 said in interviews that he really likes sawing pine. So there's scenes of a guy sawing a log because that's what David Lynch would do for his own mm, for edification. Amusement, yeah. yeah. Uh, this, uh, this also came at a time when he was really trying to get into digital filmmaking and had pretty much turned his back on celluloid. Yeah. He said it looked good, but if you watch the documentary Side by Side, the the one with Keanu Reeves, mm-hmm. he talks about how cinema is a dinosaur. You have yeah. to wait all this time to see these dailies and you have to shoot it in a certain way. And by the time you get back the scene you shot, you've already had four more ideas. And it's I'm yeah. ahead of what, it, what the production is. When you when you when you had to spend your entire career mm-hmm. shooting and then waiting days to get the dailies back, and then you have to like it's mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of older filmmakers were very eager to move into digital mm-hmm. because Finally, we can just get this fucking thing going. Was super easy. And this yeah, was in 2006. Willing to sacrifice elements of an aesthetic in yeah, order so, to move uh, on. So, yeah, when he made Inland Empire, it was uh, 2006, and he was working with essentially just consumer-grade digital cameras. Really low-quality yeah. low visuals. And yet he makes these. He makes this movie, which is, again, a lo- very minimal lighting in a lot of it. It's just it's stuff you could do at home. David Lynch has such an eye mm-hmm. for the discomforting. That he can take consumer grade cameras and throw something together at a house in an afternoon that looks unbelievably professional. Like he is very particular. He's getting exactly an effect mm. that he wants to. This doesn't look cheap just because it's shot on the cheap. Yeah, like yeah. it looks very particular. Mm. It's very. Uh, it's very frightening. It's very it, discomforting. It, is, it, yeah. it has that kind of that that found footage horror quality too, yeah. which was you know hip at the time. And I think that had a lot to do with the tech, camera technology at the time. Uh, but yeah, what eventually emerged was a story about how much David Lynch admires not just Laura Dern but actors in general, yeah. but Laura Dern in particular. Yeah, uh, and how their uh, ability to swallow their own identities mm-hmm. to the service of some of like an art is uh depicted in the inland empire as this kind of blood sacrifice that they're making of themselves yeah and yeah there's no, it's, uh, a, it's a it's basically losing your soul and yeah. replacing it with someone else's yeah, the, for a while if, yeah. if you look at uh lost highway mm-hmm. and mulholland drive you can see that david lynch is preoccupied with the idea of identity yeah and what that means what it means to have that i erased or replaced with something else and that, what does an actor do? But 
replace their own identity as a job, like mm-hmm. on a daily basis. So I think this is a poem to actors. Yeah. That's how I see Inland Empire. Um, I don't think you're wrong. I don't. I, I think there's, I think one of the beauties of a film like Inland Empire is that you can have that perspective and someone else could have an entirely different perspective and you can focus on the movie within the movie as uh, maybe the true narrative here and is a story mm-hmm. about trauma and sex work. Or you can uh, see you it can... as something like straight up supernatural. Yeah, like it's just a story of a haunted on, yeah. movie script, basically. And it works on that level. If you want to just focus it on that, it's about a movie that's making the actors in it lose their mind. It could work actually on a plot level if you really, really wanted it to. You can look at it as a story about relationships dissolving and how you know she's married and she might be having an affair with her co with her co star, but maybe they're not. Maybe it's all in her head. Maybe it's all a matter of obsession. Maybe it is a story about someone who is desperately trying to get ahead in the industry mm-hmm. and destroying themselves in the process. But rather than seem unfocused, which, you know, complaint I've lobbied at some other films this week, uh, this feels like all of those interpretations are, have give, been given equal validity. And, yeah, and, and be, because, David Lynch is taking yeah. the time to give all of those voice. And this is a long film. It's three yeah. hours in length. Yeah. Uh, which is going to be a tough sit for something as, like, bizarre and experimental as this. Yeah, this might... Th- I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Depending on your patience for uh, non-linear, uh, art, you know... Uh, uh, experimental mm. uh, storytelling techniques uh you might feel the length on this one you yeah, might you yeah. might say to yourself okay this is getting a little long i can i can appreciate that if on the other hand you find that you find yourself on the film's wavelength it's like binging the new twin peaks it's like a lot of it's just weird for its own sake and you're just you assume this will work out later maybe it won't <laughs> <laughs> maybe at the end you just saw a bunch of really fascinating shit and that's okay too mm. sometimes that's all a dream is you don't necessarily come out of the dream going well i know what that means and that means and that means and that means and sometimes it's just weird shit your brain came up with while you were comatose for eight hours i love it eddie Ezard has a funny bit about dreams it's like uh, when you when you tell somebody your dream to a psychiatrist and they interpret your dreams. What does the dream mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, Stop sorry, that! Phone is buzzing. Uh, the uh, it says yes. I, I had uh, and, and and her bit is uh, I had this dream and I dreamed that I, I saw a marsh and and the, the, their heads explode and their buttocks explode and they gave me some jam and they said and and the psychiatrist said ah you didn't get on with your father. <laughs> <laughs> like, Wait, what? What is that? That the buttocks exploding sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, David Lynch has always very, uh, very staunchly refused to talk about his films because yeah, to explain what, he, what they mean, what he what he has, wants to say is what he said. That's yeah. what's in the movie. The whole idea of if you're confused by it or you have your interpretation, that's the point. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded of these. Um, it's kind of like when people say like, uh, uh, yes, well, what really happened at the end of Inception? Was it all? A, was he still in a dream mm-hmm. or was he in the real world? And I'll tell you the secret The secret to that right now. Hmm. We don't know. The point is we don't know. The point it's is... It's left ambiguous. The point is it's left ambiguous on purpose. Your mind wants to fill in that gap and make a choice. And that says something about you. That's the interactive part of the cinema. Where you get to be intellectually, emotionally, psychologically engaged with the piece and come to your own conclusion. That's what's exciting about it. David Lynch works like that, but instead of just doing it like right in the last scene, it's every single second Mm. of the film. And that can be incredibly engaging if you're in the mood for it. 
And if you're that's not your type of filmmaking, it might be really, really weird. But I do recommend you check it out. Maybe Inland Empire isn't the best place to start with David Lynch because it is such a lengthy tome. Mm-hmm. Maybe something like Lost Highway or Blue Velvet might be, or Mulholland Drive might be mm. a better start. Yeah, but uh, the- it this is this is big, epic, complex. David Lynch and if that sounds good to you and you never had a chance to see it and you never had a chance to see it on the big screen do it while you can yeah, uh, I, I I get off on lengthy difficult movies that's sort of a, a, a bit of my jam so I really like Inland Empire uh, there is a moment in this film mm. just like a straight up horror movie moment uh, where we get a, a really terrifying close up of Lardern's face oh, it's yeah. like distorted and um and I, I'm guessing this is something, uh, and, and it, it goes to sort of like insecurities about your own looks, but it's you know presented as really terrifying, and it's a still image. And I remember when that shot came up in the movie theater, because I saw this yeah. when it first came out in 2006. And it was one of those moments where I stare at it for a few minutes before I start screaming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> even at home, even, I first saw this at home, even at home. By the time that that comes up, mm. yeah, even a movie as strange as Inland Empire has kind of lulled you into a sense of like, well, this is what the movie is. Mm. And even though that shot has been used in a lot of stills, you're not ready for it when it comes up. Yeah, you're really Based are. on the context of the scene and the pacing of it, and it's and just... The sound effects that go with it, yeah. It's, it's just the most frightening image. It's not a frightening image by itself. You might say to yourself, well, that's a, that's a disturbing image. But if you watch the whole film and then that scene just happens to come up when it does, it's the it's the fucking freakiest thing. And God, David Lynch knows how to get you. He really does. It, sh- I almost wish he had tried just once to do a horror movie, like just to well, try it. What would the David Lynch? Kind of a horror movie. Well, 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 yeah, Eraserhead's like, a horror movie. Mm, I would no. say Eraserhead's a horror movie. Eraserhead. Well, it's really a, scary. Anyway. It's scary. But I guess what I mean is semi-conventional horror movie. Like, I'd be oh, curious like to see what he would... killing each other. Yeah, like, like, like he, we saw what he did with sci-fi with Dune. Mm-hmm. He had plenty of downtime between movies. He could have cranked out a horror movie in the 90s. Why not? He he still could. Um, David Lynch has... Uh, he retired from filmmaking after Inland Empire. Yeah. Uh, he the, went back the, to TV uh, and did Twin he Peaks. W- he went he back to TV and he did Twin Peaks. And the contingency was just do what you want. Yeah. Really, whatever. As and long as you boy want. Did as he, as you boy, want. did he ever... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he did not follow any kind of pre-existing template for the Twin Peaks The Return. That's for goddamn sure. Well, what I'm kind of surprised is that uh, Twin Peaks The Return wasn't rejected. Yeah. I would think that, that you're going back and David Lynch just sort of doing what he wanted uh, mm-hmm. would upset people who had gotten used to like those characters in certain scenarios. And Much like Fire Walk with me yeah. yeah, Yeah. But no, I think at that point, everyone was just sort of like, I don't know what we, this we, is, we but know, it's a, we know it was kind of the antidote Lynch. to a lot of television. Yeah, It was kind of nothing like it. Everyone was just like, well, let's do this. <laughs> let's try it. And the fact that that show was successful and like embraced mm-hmm. actually is very encouraging, I feel. And I feel like there's actually room mm-hmm. for a lot of experimental shit to maybe find more of an audience uh, now. Now, now, that, now that it can just be clicked on uh-huh. in streaming or on your DVR, rather than having to go and seek it out at like... Art houses at midnight. Uh-huh. As much as I love that aesthetic, as much as I love that uh, a presentation, I think a lot of people are more willing to give stuff a chance if they just have to click on it at home, yeah. and they might find they really like it. So uh, I realize that's a bit ironic because Mahal, I'm sorry, because Inland Empire is uh, now in theaters. 
but yeah, definitely make sure you check it out. Hopefully, it has like a, a decent home video release of this new uh, upscaled version. Yeah, well, cleaned uh, up a bit. The you Criterion know? Collection has put out several of David Lynch's movies in the past, and if yeah. they clean up Inland Empire, I'd be interested in. Getting I think that. I, mean, I think it's a Janus uh, uh, restoration. So we'll okay, go. so yeah, then, then we're gonna get a probably gonna get a, a Criterion Blu-ray at some point. I sure as hell hope so. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, that is it for critically acclaimed uh, this week. Let's uh, review some movies on our critically acclaimed scale. Once again, we review films on a scale of C- to C+. Most films are a C. That is uh, some good, some bad, all mediocre. Might work better for some audiences than others. You know, average. C- is below average. That's any movie we don't recommend. Any movie that uh, just, you know, doesn't really work, kind of rubs us the wrong way, or we think is absolutely awful, that's a C-. Anything in that range. And C- is anything that's above average. We genuinely recommend it. We think it's quite good. We think it's the best thing ever. Anything in that range? C+. On that note, Whitney, where do you stand on Inland Empire? Uh, C+. I think people ought to see this movie. Uh, It is long. It is quite challenging. It's very strange. Uh, What are you going to take from it? Let's see. Yeah. Well, yeah, watch it and find out. Uh, because Very there's, there's going to be a lot to sort of read out of that, out of yeah. a movie like this. Yeah, I agree. It's a big old C plus for me. It's not my favorite Lynch. I don't even know if it's in my top three, but it's really, really, really good. And um, yeah, and unfortunately, I think it was a little underseen when it initially came out. And okay. it has been it, not very well available on home video for a really long time. Yeah, well, it's, so it's, take the opportunity. It wasn't in a lot of theaters. Uh, couldn't just couldn't get a lot of distribution, uh, mostly because of its length and its content. It's long yeah. and it's strange. Uh, and, you know, that's not <laughs> highly commercial. So, uh, yeah, it, I was I had to go out to the Sunset Five uh, here in L.A. I was the only theater that was playing it in Los Angeles. Yeah. Didn't play in most cities. Uh, yeah, now that it's being re-released, if it's playing in a city near you, please go see it on the big screen. Really yeah. get, get trap yourself in. Uh, yeah. Understand that there's going to be a lot of sort of down, kind of sleepy moments in this movie. And and then it's going to grab you by the nose and it's going to shake you about, around a bit. So um, yeah. it's it's really, really terrifying. It's really, really good. All right, moving on. Uh, the new Shutter horror film, The Cellar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to give this film a very high C-. There's a level okay. of competency here that I cannot deny, but in service of what? Nothing really interesting, yeah. and I just I can't get past that, unfortunately. I, I'm going to give it a C, uh, just because I, I think it actually, because it did actually scare me. Yeah. It, it frightened me in certain moments, and I think the visuals are really strong. I think the pacing, the editing, and the sound design are all really, really great. It's it's just the, the basic idea and the script are pr- super mediocre. Yeah. Like, the, it's like, right, not even down the middle. It's like below the middle. And uh, That's if, why if, I give it a C-. If they, <laughs> if they put some, like, creativity or some more interesting thought into it, it could have been a classic. Yeah. with this style. And I feel like this filmmaker uh, has shown a lot of promise. So I'm looking forward to what they do next. Absolutely. Uh, next up is Choose or Die, uh, which I was struggling with what I was going to rate this, and I'm just going to go with my gut. I had a good time. Okay. I'm going to give it a very low C+. <laughs> oh, my it God. Is a fun, it is a fun, uh, silly horror movie. I feel like uh, when you go back to something like, uh, when you look at the movies that are released by Sh- uh, Shout Factory or Scream Factory, mm. Some of them are, bo- are absolute classics, and some of them are just weird stuff, and you can't believe they got a Blu-ray release, and like, oh, I thank God I saw Evil Speak, or something like... <laughs> 976 Evil. Yeah, yeah, just something like that, where it's just like, you watch it, it's it's actually like, it knows it's kind of stupid, but you had a good time watching it, and what more could you possibly ask for something with this premise? I'm at that point with Choose or Die. I'm like, I'm not sure what more I could have really have asked for from it. I had a good time, fun, memorable set pieces. I like the characters. I'll give it a pass. 
All right. I'm going to give a C minus. Ah! I, I don't like this movie. I think it's dumb. Uh, <laughs> if, if I'm thinking of movies like fear.com and friend request and nine, seven, six evil, you're, you're not in a good realm. This is, that, that was never really a, the, that type of hipster techno horror has never, never survived very well. Never availed itself too well. Yeah. I'm trying to think I, if I, any I of think them have like ghost the, in the machine. Wasn't very good. The, Scream uh, was kind of techno horror. Scream the cell was phone was new at the time. Horror. Now um, it's so ubiquitous we don't think of it that way. I, I think the one that really succeeded is something like uh, David Lynch or David Cronenberg's Videodrome. Well, yeah. Which, you know, he, he does a lot of tech uh, or Existence. That's a video game based horror. Yeah, um, and uh, Videodrome was about like pirate television back in yeah, the 80s yeah, when yeah. that was an actual thing. Yeah, um, like, a, like Betamax t- uh, cassettes or like these yeah. evil squishy organic things that you insert into well, somebody's abdomen. It's no Videodrome, uh, but I did enjoy it. Yeah, I, I think Videodrome works, but yeah, for the most part, okay, I see what you're doing here. We're afraid of old tech. Uh, there's something hidden in it. Yeah. If you're going to do that, do it right. Yeah, Make I it scary. It. Make it more fun than this. I, I had enough fun to justify uh, but I see your point. And then uh, lastly, Fantastic Beasts. The Secrets of Dumbledore. Yeah. Uh, it's a big old C minus. Yeah, it's, these movies are all pretty, are yeah. all just solidly C minus movies. Yeah, uh, because they're not telling the story well, and they don't know where they're what they're doing with these movies, or what kind of yeah. wonderment we're supposed to be getting out of these movies. Yeah, I'll give a little bit of credit to Dan Fogler in particular. I think mm-hmm. Dan Fogler is really bringing it in all these. Mads Mikkelsen is absolutely doing his job, and mm-hmm. I do want to give a credit, especially if this is like the last we ever see him. Uh, I think Newt Scamander was an interesting idea for a hero. I wish he'd been allowed to star in his own movies. You know what? I, you <laughs> I wish know what he'd been allowed to, to like have his story told instead of get wrapped up in all this other shit. I would love to see Newt Scamander in a live-action thirty-minute TV series. Oh, uh, like, like almost like has... a Discovery Channel series where he just goes and fi- finds different magical beasts. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's just like yeah, sort of the not necessarily a documentary style, but you know, yeah. just it's about him finding a beast. Yeah, and he learns something weird about a beast. That's that kind of. I mean, I I don't mean and Dan to, Fogler is his sidekick. That he I don't mean to project to and and give a movie demerits for not being what I wanted, but that's mm. kind of what they suggested it would be. And it wasn't. Based, yeah. And based on what we actually got, which wasn't better than that, I kind of wish they'd done that. <laughs> Make it actually about some, you know, fantastic beasts. Maybe go find them <laughs> rather than. Mm. Wizard presidents. Okay, moving on. Uh, anyway, that is it for uh, critically acclaimed. Uh, next week we might not have a critically acclaimed because I'm actually going out of town for a little bit. Uh, we're gonna pre-record some stuff uh, to air on the network, including the Iron List, a few other things as well. So there will be content on the Patreon page and the main channel, but probably not a new critically acclaimed because I won't have time to see any new movies before uh, I go. Uh, but I won't be gone very, very long, and we should be back up and running pretty quick afterwards. Yeah. Uh, so just a heads up about that. But to everyone who subscribes, everyone who's on our Patreon, there will be new stuff to enjoy in that time. Uh, speaking of which, thank you to all of our patrons, uh, without whom the show would not exist. Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, we have a lot of exclusive shows over there, including one we just added. Uh, we have a series called Only the Best, where we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture, and we've been doing it in chronological order. And as we've been going through the 20s and the 30s, and now we're in the late 1940s, we've run into something different, which is the Academy started to honor Best International Feature under different banners over the years. 
Uh, so we've decided to add a new podcast to our $5 tier, uh, which is only the best international in which we will review all of the films that initially won. There didn't used to be nominees, best international feature. And then eventually when we get there, all the films that were nominated. So extra episodes basically is what you get there. A film, mm. film history, isn't it nice? Um, anyway, we're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm Matt William Bibiani. I'm Matt Whitney Seibold. If you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, feel free to send us an email. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. box? Yeah, send us a physical letter. Send it to Newt Scamander. Don't do that. Okay. Care of the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Thank you very, very much once again, everybody, for listening. Hope you have a wonderful week. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?